can I, as a Christian, refuse to forgive another person? I mean, if, if the damage is just so great, the offense is so enormous, can I, can I withhold forgiveness from someone? Can, or even should I, forgive someone uh, for what they've done, even if they aren't sorry? Even if they don't ask for forgiveness? Should I, can I forgive them? Is it possible to forgive and forget? Do I need to forgive myself for wrongs that I have done? How about this? Is there an unforgivable sin? If so, what is it? Could I have committed it? Here's a question. If God has already forgiven my sin, past, present, and future, why are we told that if we confess our sins, He, God, will forgive us? 1 John 1, 9. Does that mean that if I don't confess all of my sins, that God, that I'm not forgiven? Those and many, many more questions we will not be answering today. So, there. Um, And I, I, I do apologize in advance for that, but these are just some of the matters that come up when we talk about forgiveness. I mean, this matter of forgiveness, we're going to answer a lot of questions today, but those are... Those are not, they, they will be answered indirectly. But that, that we could do a 13-week series on forgiveness and not exa- exhaust everything that could be said, but instead we're trying to tackle in one week um, uh, forgiveness as part of this 13-week series that we're doing uh, based upon the Apostles' Creed. And so our focus is not going to be on, on those horizontal uh, aspects of forgiveness today, how forgiveness works between believers and for believers with other people, though though what we will be talking about is that vertical orientation of forgiveness that has everything to do with that horizontal aspect and and everything the Bible talks about horizontally is based upon rooted in our forgiveness from God, but that 's not going to be our focus, and we can answer all the questions there are that we would have about god 's forgiveness of us of the believer those Unconditional aspects, conditional aspects, like in passages like 1 John 1 9, that will have to be in another time. And so our focus is going to be where the primary focus in Scripture is upon, and that's God's free, unconditional forgiveness of sinners through the atoning death of Jesus Christ. That's the that's where the Bible is most most frequently focused. That's what the Apostles' Creed has in mind, and we, we can be sure of that because it's not answering all the questions and dealing with all of the issues of, of Christianity, but it's getting to the very core of Christianity. And there's nothing more core to Christianity than the, this truth of God's forgiveness of us in Christ. And so that's where we're going to focus. So we, we, we will confess in, in, in just a moment together uh, the Apostles' Creed once more. But this, this section that we're in, and we will have one more week. Uh, next week we'll, we'll be finishing up this, this study but today, it's, I, we're in that paragraph within the creed. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. Simple statement, but profound. Now, everybody who knows anything about Christianity probably associates forgiveness with Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ with forgiveness. There's no shockers there. So when you're singing songs about forgiveness, if you have any exposure to Christianity, you're not like, wow, that's weird. Why are they singing 
about forgiveness in the same song as Jesus. No, we, we understand that. Before Jesus was born, the angel said to him, this is his going to be his name. He's going to be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So it's in that realm. And during his public ministry, Jesus made this radical, stunning uh, assertion about himself when he said, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Matthew 9, 6. And he exercised that authority. It's recorded for us multiple times in the New Testament where Jesus is forgiving sins and, and everybody's going crazy about this. The religious leaders are going nuts. On the night before his death, he makes this, this incredible assertion that the wine in that cup at the, the Lord's Supper represented what? His blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew 26, 28. With spikes driven through his hands and feet as he's hanging on the cross, he's praying over and over, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And, and so we see this in the life of Jesus, but the connection between Jesus and forgiveness, it, it, it doesn't stop with his death. No, Jesus, the risen Christ, he's, he's crucified, he's risen. Now he's about to send his disciples out. And, and as he commissions them, he commissions them what? To preach forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. And that's exactly what they did. I mean, starting at Pentecost with Peter, the apostles and, and other Christians, they, they just kept this constant refrain going. Christ died and He rose again so that your sins might be forgiven. This is the crux of their message. And so here in Acts 13, the passage that Van read a moment ago, where we're, we're kind of in this climax of a, of a sermon that the apostle Paul is preaching. He's in in Pisidian Antioch, and he's, he's there on his first missionary journey on a Sabbath, preaching in the synagogue, and, and he gets to this kind of climax of the message, and he says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, through the risen Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And what Paul proclaimed in that synagogue on that Sabbath day, I stand here and proclaim to you in this room on this Lord's day, is that through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. By Him and Him alone, everyone who believes is freed from everything you could not be freed from by the law. That's... That's the message. That's the essence of the Christian message. The, the gospel is the good news of forgiveness of sins. For, forgiveness of sinners. And, and the restoration of the favor and fellowship of God. Have you heard that message? Have you, have you believed it? Have your sins been forgiven? Do you have assurance that your sins have been taken away? Well, Psalm 32, one, we, we read this together a moment ago. Blessed, blessed is the man. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And, uh, we are a blessed people, brothers and sisters. If For those of you who are Christians and who are here or in Christ, our sins have been covered. Our transgressions have been forgiven. 
And if you are here without Christ, they can be today. And, 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 and I beg that they would, and you would look to Jesus. We'll say more about that. I want to just frame our time this morning, and, and so we're, we'll, we'll, we'll be looking at these verses in, in Acts 13, but we'll be expanding beyond that. And, and we're just going to ask four questions. Four questions that do two things. I, wanna, I want these questions to help shape our understanding so that our understanding of forgiveness, which can get distorted and, and can get, we can get off, but to shape our understanding so that it follows more the biblical contours of, of what forgiveness truly is. So shape our understanding, that's one goal. And then secondly, to intensify our gratitude for God's forgiveness. And so as we an- ask and answer these questions, that's, what I'm, that's how I've been praying this week for you brothers and sisters. First, first question, why do we need it? Why do we need God's forgiveness? Or we could say it this way, what's, what's the problem? What's the problem? I mean, if you don't get the problem right, if you don't, if you don't diagnose the problem properly, you're, not, you're, you're, you're going to easily miss the solution. You're going to be looking to the wrong thing for, for the cure. I mean, we understand if a, if a patient is diagnosed with uh, indigestion or heartburn while he's having a heart attack, those, that bottle of Tums you hand him is not really going to do much. And so we understand the importance of getting, understanding the problem. And Scripture makes it crystal clear what the problem is. And every kid who's ever been in a Sunday school class could answer this question probably. And it's what? It's sin. Sin is the problem. And, and this problem of sin, it began in the garden. Remember back in Genesis 3 with the first created man and woman. This is where it begins. And sin has wreaked havoc on the world ever since. And so that in, as Ephesians 2 and so many other passages make crystal clear, we are all now, just by virtue of being born, we are by nature born children of wrath. We are born dead in our trespasses and our sins. And so sin is the problem. Sin is a universal problem. And that's why the work that Jesus came to do has to do with sin. He's dealing with sin. And so what, what is sin? Let me, let me just give you a, a solid historic definition of sin. And this is from the Westminster Shorter, Shorter Catechism. Just a series of questions and answers desired, designed to teach, teach basic Bible doctrine. And, and the 14th question in that catechism is, what is sin? And this is the answer. Sin is any want or any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Now that sounds, that language probably sounds familiar if you know your New Testament. 1 John 3, verse 4. This is mimicking that wording. There, there we read, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Why? Sin is lawlessness. And so fundamentally, sin is lawlessness. God's law and His laws that are, that are revealed to us in the Scriptures, they, they tell us what we should do, tell us what we should not do. And, and, so, and the reality is we don't conform to God's law. We, we, we transgress God's law instead. We, we do it our way instead of God's way. We reject His way. And so we fall short of God's perfect standard. And that is sin. But, but it, it's, it's more than simply lawlessness. The Bible also pictures sin as rebellion. And this is very closely connected to lawlessness. But the, this is the picture you get there in Genesis 3. Uh, Adam and Eve, they rebel against the command of God. 
In other words, it's not just that sin is rejecting uh, rules or, or a rule. It's rejecting God who has given the, the rule. It's rejecting a relationship with Him in pursuit of something else. It's, it's betrayal. Sin is betrayal. The Bible also says that, this talks about sin in this way. It's missing the mark. It's missing the mark. Now, I know sometimes when we hear that, and some of you are, you know, like archers or marksmen or something like that, and, and, and your idea, your, your picture, when you hear missing the mark, it's like there's this bullseye, maybe you just throw darts. And if you're just, you know, you're, you're missing the mark, you may just be barely outside of that perfect center bullseye, and, and that's what it means to sin. It's just to be a little off. That's not what the Bible is talking about. You know, you're really close, but you're not quite perfect. That's not it. When Paul talks about sin as missing the mark, he means you're missing the whole point of everything. You've missed it. We're not, we're not just a little bit off. We've totally missed the mark. And that's, that's, the, that's the way Scripture speaks of sin. So that's, that's, that's not everything there is to say. Again, we, we can't exhaust this, but that's a little short, quick picture of what sin is. Now, another aspect of the problem of sin, why is the problem, what's the issue, why do we need forgiveness, is, is, is what does sin lead to? And that's the, that's the second part of the answer to this first question. First, it leads to guilt. Because of our sin, we stand guilty before God. We, many people, they won't deny the fact of sin. They won't say, no, I'm not a sinner. I never sin. No, but they'll deny the guilt of sin. And, and when we, but, but, but when we sin, we are guilty before God. We stand under His just judgment. No matter how we feel about our sin, no matter how bad we think it is, or how, eh, it's not so bad, it doesn't matter. The reality is we are guilty. We are condemned. Not a little guilty, but we're deserving of eternal wrath. It also, it leads to uncleanness. It leads to decay, moral decay. It corrupts us. It corrupts relationships. It corrupts society. It corrupts our bodies. It, it corrupts our minds. It corrupts everything. Sin corrupts. Sin, what does sin always do? And this is the allure of it, right? It always promises to make our lives better. And as many times as we've sinned, we, we still, we we buy into that lie again. It says that it's going to make things better. It's going to make us happier. It's going to make us more fulfilled. It's going to make us more satisfied. It's going to make things easier. But that's, oh, that's a bold-faced lie. It never betters our lives. It always corrodes. It always corrupts and decays. So it leads to uncleanness. It also dehumanizes us. I know we have a little saying I don't know where this is original from, and if, if it's from Shakespeare, just call me a fool or something. I don't know, but to err is human, to forgive divine. That's that's foolishness. <laughs> to err is not human. To err is fallen. I mean, God made us. He made us in His image. It's not because we're human that we sin. It's because we've, we're fallen that we sin. And so you're not more human because you sin you're actually less human it's a dehumanizing thing we will always be human even when we stand before god right and without sin we will be we will be more fully human than we've ever been and so sin sin again it doesn't exist because we're human it exists because we're fallen and and the last thing i'll tell you sin always leads to alienation alienation now on a on a horizontal plane we understand this I mean, have you ever offended a friend? You said something, you did something, and 
it, you, you, you know it was wrong. And then the next time you're around them, it's very awkward, isn't it? And it's uncomfortable. And you're nervous, and you, you have trouble making eye contact with them. Maybe you avoid them at whatever the party or gathering is. They, they call you, and you say, I'm just going to let it go to voicemail. I don't, I don't know if I can talk right now. I don't. And you're weird around them. Why? Because sin has brought alienation into that relationship. And, and that brings anxiety. It brings this inner turmoil over the consequences of sin. Well, sin not only alienates us from one another, but there's that sense in which it alienates us. Or it does, not a sense. It alienates us from God. And so sin is the problem. Sin is a big problem. And, and that's why the center of Jesus' ministry, it, it centers on forgiveness of sins. It's dealing with sin. And so Acts 13, 39, Christ has come to, to free us from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. What is it we could not be freed of by the law of Moses? And that's what sin and the penalty of sin, it, it, it was not enough. God didn't give the law so that we would keep it and obey it and do it and free ourselves from sin and live. It's not why He gave the law. He gave the law so that we would have knowledge of our sin. Scripture says, the law says, do this, do, do, do. And we can't. We can't. It's this, it's this perfect standard that we can never attain to. That's why I say to you, I know some of you come from kind of maybe church backgrounds that are, we would say, legalistic, where this, this, this is the constant refrain, is this is what you need to do, you need to be better, you need to perform. And I would say, if, if, this, is, if, if this is your mindset and you're here today, you have the lowest view of law of anybody. Because your view of the law is that I can do this if I just work harder and, and others can do this. And the reality is the law is a standard of perfection. Be perfect. That's the standard. If you want to entrance into the kingdom, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the law. And it's not intended to, to be a standard that we can attain. It's intended to show us we cannot do it on ourselves. And it's, it's designed to make us sin conscious, yes, but it doesn't free us from sin. Our greatest problem. The law does what it's designed to do by God. It's, to, it's a tutor that leads us to Christ. It leads us to Him, the only one who can forgive our sins and to free us from our greatest problem. I read this from an article this week, and I think this captures it well. I'm, just, I'm thinking about verse 39. The law comes not to reform the sinner, nor to show him or her the narrow way to life, but to crush the sinner's hopes of escaping God's wrath through personal effort or even cooperation. All of our righteousness must come from someone else, someone who has fulfilled the law's demands. Only after we have been stripped of our filthy rags of righteousness, our fig leaves through which we try in vain to hide our guilt and shame, can we be clothed with Christ's righteousness. First comes the law to proclaim judgment and death, then the gospel to proclaim justification and life. And so, this is what the, the point that Paul's making here in, in this message in Acts 13 and verse 39 is the law couldn't do it. And so, so the first question, why do we need forgiveness? Because we're all sinners. 
Because of our sin, we all stand guilty before God, alienated from God, in moral decay. And the law isn't the answer. It can't stop sin. It can't deal with the penalty of sin, though it points us to what can, to Christ. No, it's the, but the forgiveness of our sins then is our first, our greatest, our most urgent need. And that's, that's the first thing we see. And so if we, if we say we have no sin, if we, if we say that we uh, have not sinned or, 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 or that we say that our sins don't matter, we not only deceive ourselves, Scripture says, but we call God a liar. We call Him a liar because He said in His Word that all people are sinners. All people are born in this condition facing this greatest problem. So that's the first question. Why, why do we need it? Why is this even matter second what does god's forgiveness mean or we can say what is it like and i'm going to be i'm going to try to be quick here because this is not really from directly from the passage here in acts 13 but kind of looking at some of the biblical imagery on forgiveness trying to gather in a lot here but there there are many ways that the bible talks about the wonderful completeness of god's forgiveness and so first thing i would say is this is when god forgives our sins he puts them out of account he puts them out of account. I mean, sometimes in Scripture, the penalty of our sin is called a debt. It's a debt. It's a, we, we're in debt to God because of our sin. And, and that is, we're under obligation to pay the penalty for our sin. And so forgiveness, then, is the remission or the cancellation of that debt. When, when we're forgiven, our debt is canceled. And our account is no longer in the red with God. That's, that's one aspect of forgiveness. Psalm 32, verse 2. Blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity. So God refuses any more to reckon or, or to impute or to, to count our sins against us. He puts them out of account. That's, a, that's one aspect. Secondly, when God forgives our sins, He puts them out of sight. Puts them out of account and He puts them out of sight. Uh, there's a passage, Isaiah 38, verse 17. In that passage, King Hezekiah, he's, he's recovered from this serious illness that he thought might take his life. And he says, you have cast all my sins behind your back. You've cast my sins behind your back. Now, to put something behind your back in, in scriptural language, it's, it's to remove something out of sight, something that's distasteful, something which you don't want to see, you don't want to know. There's, a, there's another illustration of this, and, and it's in Nehemiah chapter 9. Ezra, the, the priest, the scribe, he's confessing the sins of, peop, of the people. He's calling uh, the people uh, out on their disobedience. And, and, and what he says is they've rebelled against God, and they have cast his law behind their back. Same idea, but they've cast God's law behind their back. And, that, and, and so they didn't, they didn't want to know his law. They didn't want to see it. They didn't want to acknowledge it. They, they, didn't, they, they cast it behind their back. And so this is the beautiful thing for us, is what a wonderful thing that even if we cast God's law behind our back because of Christ, we, He will cast our law breaking behind His back. This is, this is good. Third, when we forgive our sins, He also puts them out of reach. Out of reach. It's just some of the biblical imagery, the language that it describes. Psalm 103, verse 12. For as far as the east is from the west, 
So far does he remove our transgressions from us. Micah 7.19, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. This, that language was in one of the songs we sang. And so when God forgives our sin, he's, he's never going to raise them uh, against us again. He's not going to just temporarily shelve our sins only to bring them back off the shelf and use them against us again. No, the, the distance from east to west is infinity. The, the, that's, and, and what's in the deepest depths of the sea, it's irretrievable. That's the idea. Also, when God forgives our sins, he puts them out of mind. Puts them out of mind. I mean, in the New Covenant, which God promised through the prophet Jeremiah to, to establish uh, this covenant with his people, and he ratified this new covenant with Jesus' shed blood, uh, and, and it, that new covenant includes this promise, Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-four: I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now, again, we understand, we we. We, we can say we will forgive each other and, and yet we find it hard and, and it really it's impossible to forget to forget uh, the sin, the offense that's been done to us and so we say things like oh, let's just bury the hatchet and you know, forgive and forget, let's just move on but what do we do? We mark the spot where we bury the hatchet with a little rock so we know where it's at and the next time something comes up, we know where to go out and dig it up and, and we'll bury the hatchet in their head or something like that. But we, we don't put it out. We don't put it out on the curb to be taken away. We, we put it kind of, I mean, there's that weird in kitchen cabinets, so corner cabinets are horrible because you can hardly get anything. But we like stick it back in that corner cabinet, the lower bottom cabinet. If we need it, it's there. It's, hard. it's not like out for everybody to see, but I know where it's at and I can get to it. That's not that way with God. But isn't that the image we sometimes have? That God is, God is holding it, and he's going, oh, yeah, yeah, but I, I, I remember. He's the, 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 what the, the biblical language is, is God says, I remember it no more. It's not because he's having amnesia. It's, it's his, God has perfect control of his mind and his memory. So he doesn't, he doesn't bring it up. When he forgives our sin, he banishes them, as, in a sense, from his thoughts. He, he doesn't consider them again. There's something even better. Lastly, when God forgives our sins, he puts, them, he puts them out of commission. He puts them out of commission. It's, it's, as, if they, it's as if they don't even exist anymore. That's how he, that's how he regards them. What, what glorious comfort, brothers and sisters, for you if you have this burdened soul over your sin, over your guilt, over your shame, and, and you continue to struggle. This is, this is wonderful truth. Hear David's prayer, Psalm 51, verse 1. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Or verse 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Isaiah 43, verse 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Or Isaiah 44, 22, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Now what happens when a cloud is, is dispersed by the wind? What happens when, when, when the mist, to the mist, when the sun rises? It disappears. It, it's, not, it's not visible. It's no, longer, it's no longer present. So the ugly, the awful record in the pages of God's book is it's erased. 
It's forgiveness. It's the slate is wiped clean. The clouds are scattered. The mist is removed. The stain is removed. Isaiah one eighteen. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are like a red like crimson, they shall become like wool. This is the completeness of the forgiveness that God offers to us. This is the, the pardon which the prodigal son received when he stumbled home. I mean, this is the forgiveness of sins. Paul proclaimed in that synagogue on that Sabbath day, and this is the forgiveness that I'm proclaiming to you. We need to be constantly remind, reminding ourselves of. So that's, there's, we know the problem now. We know something of what this forgiveness of God is like. Now, on what basis can God do this? What are the grounds? That's the third question. What, what is the ground of God's forgiveness? Look back in Acts 13, verse 38. Paul proclaims, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Now, that's a loaded little prepositional phrase. So, so some people think that forgiveness of sins, that, that we, we, we make it too complicated. It's, it's very simple. They don't, they don't quite understand why we would have a whole sermon devoted to this, why, why we would say you could take 13 weeks and talk about forgiveness. Forgiveness is kid stuff. This is just like kindergarten, Sunday school. We get this. That's God's job to forgive our sins. That's just what he does. It's no, nothing, no big deal, nothing to see here. That's crazy. This is, this is one of the most radical doctrines in the Bible. Let me just give you a, this is a quote from Foss Westcott. He was a 19th century Anglican minister, but he, was a, he, was, he, he got the gospel and he said, nothing superficially seems simpler or easier than forgiveness. But nothing, if we look at it deeply, is more mysterious or more difficult. Or another writer has said, Forgiveness, which to us is the plainest of duties, to God is the profoundest of problems. So what makes forgiveness so problematic? Well, problematic for God is what he's saying. Not that there's anything difficult for God. I understand that. But let me borrow John Stott's words. He said, Forgiveness would be a moral impossibility for God without the cross. So some, some of our challenge, some of our difficulty comes from the fact that we, we often equate our forgiveness of other people with God's forgiveness of us. This is, this is why we struggle to, to grasp a state, some statements like that. Because we think that they're the same thing, but they are different. And they, and, they, and they shouldn't be confused. They're related, but it's comparatively easy for us to forgive each other because we're private individuals. We can overlook personal injuries, personal offenses. In fact, we're expected to in Scripture. We, it may cost us our pride. It is, it may, we may not find it easy to forgive our friends, let alone our enemies. But there's, there's no doubt we can, that we should. You cannot even be a Christian and, and you can turn on Oprah and she's going to tell you forgiveness is a good thing. Like everybody recognizes this is something that we should be able to do as, be, as human beings. But with God, it's altogether different. God isn't just a private individual. 
Sin against God isn't just a personal injury or offense. It is that, but it is much more. No, God is the moral ruler of the universe. And sin is the violation of his law. Sin is lawlessness. And so with God, the whole moral order is involved. To, 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 to ignore, to overlook, to, to condone sin, it would be to plunge the whole world into moral anarchy. No, the, the lawgiver must stand behind the laws that he has made. And so the real question is not why God finds it hard to forgive. The real question is how God can ever forgive us at all. That's the thing that we should be struggling with. For if he has infinite justice, he can't just lightly cancel sin. And if he's infinite mercy, he, he cannot lightly punish sin. And so here is the divine dilemma. How can he forgive the sinner without compromising his justice? How can he, how can he judge the sinner without frustrating his love? How can justice and mercy be reconciled? And the answer, we know, is at the cross. At the cross. There, there, it's there at the cross God passed sentence upon sin, and it's there that God bore the sentence Himself. There at the cross, God condemned sin in the flesh, and there in the flesh of Jesus, He suffered the condemnation of our sin. There at the cross, in His infinite justice, He exacted the penalty of our sin. And there, in His infinite mercy, He accepted it in the person of His Son. It's the cross. As, and as we look to the cross, we, we, we should struggle with this. It's hard to tell what is more emphatic there. Is it that God is righteous and implacable and intolerant of sin? Is that what stands out at the cross? We'd say, yes, that's what stands out. Or is it the burning, inextinguishable compassion he has for sinners? And we say, oh no, th that's it. We're struggled to, to see because both are so clear. The cross is the clearest revelation in all of history of both the wrath of God and the love of God. It's where they meet. For there we see Christ, the Son of God, bearing the sins of the world in our place. The dark clouds of human depravity closing in upon Jesus on the cross until the very light of the Father's countenance is, is, is all but gone and He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So our sins, they, they, they came between the Father and the Son. Our sins, in a sense... As it were, sent Christ to hell. Hell is the consequence of sin. And on the cross, Jesus endured in concentrated form our eternal punishment. So that we might be spared of that consequence forever. So the only ground on which God can forgive sin is the death of Jesus Christ. There is no other ground. And the only place where the forgiveness of sins can be received is at the cross. There is no other place. And the only way by which the stain of sin can be removed is by the blood of Jesus. There is no other way. And I say it again, as, as we, we, we remind ourselves of this often at the Lord's table, for this is the blood of my covenant, Jesus says, for, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And blood, it stands for a life laid down in death. Our sins can be forgiven only, only, by the virtue and the merit of Je and the benefit of Jesus' death. Hebrews 9.22 Without the shedding of blood 
there is no forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1, 7, In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. 1 John 1, 7, The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sin. There's that image in Revelation chapter 7, and verse 14, the, the saints are standing before the throne of God. They're, they're wearing these robes that have been made white because they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And, the, and that is by virtue of the death of Christ. That's what that's communicating. By virtue of Christ's death, we have a righteousness that fits us for, to stand before the throne of God, clothed in the righteousness of another. So forgiveness, it's, it's only available to the sinner through the death of Christ. Which means, if anyone, if you, are trusting in anything else in, for your forgiveness, other than Christ and Him crucified, you're trusting a delusion. If you're, if you're looking for some other refuge from, from the wrath of God for your sin, looking for something other than the cross of Jesus Christ. You're being deceived. We aren't forgiven because somehow innately we deserve forgiveness. We are not forgiven because our good might outweigh the bad on the scales of performance. We are not forgiven because we we work hard for it. We, We give it our best. We aren't forgiven because of some innate value within us. We aren't forgiven because of vows we make, promises we make to God to change. The only grounds of our forgiveness is the atoning death of Jesus Christ. If, if, if anything other than Christ's atonement is the basis for our forgiveness, then we have no reason for assurance or any sense of security. But because... Christ's atoning death is the ground of our forgiveness according to scripture we have a security that cannot be shaken so forgiveness it's only available to the sinner through the death of Jesus Christ but here's the wonderful news forgiveness is available to the sinner through the death of Jesus Christ to all who would call upon his name and so that brings us to the last question how how then do we receive God's forgiveness. How do we receive it? We've seen how wonderfully complete God's forgiveness is. We've seen what, why we need it and, and that God offers it. We, we've seen the grounds for it, the death of Jesus Christ. Now how can we receive it? And the answer is by faith. It's by faith. Look again at Acts 13, there verse 38 and 39. Through this man, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by him... Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. We're accepted, we're forgiven by God by trusting in our righteous substitute, Jesus Christ. We, we believe in Him. We look away from ourselves. We look to Christ. We look away from we, 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 we own our sin and guilt and we look to Christ for grace. We, we don't make excuses for our sin and we look to Christ for forgiveness. We look away from our performance and we look to Christ who, who, who finished for us. We don't receive God's forgiveness by our doing, by our performance, by our merit, but by trusting in Christ and what He has done. 
Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you, do you know this forgiveness of sins? Have, have you, are you clinging? Are you trusting in something other than Christ? I beg you, I plead with you today. If you've just come in here for the first time, or if you've been coming and, and yet you're still, you're, 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 you have trouble letting go of, the, of this sense that I think I can do it. I can do enough. No, you can't. Trust in Christ. Cry out to Him. Acknowledge that you are a sinner. You are, you are, you are stand guilty before God and your only plea is Jesus and His blood shed for you. The fact that He died in your place. Cry out to Him right now. You can ignore the rest of what I'm saying and talk to God and then come talk to us. We'd love to rejoice with you that your sins have been forgiven. But even brothers and sisters as believers, this is, this is what we remind ourselves. This isn't just a message that gets us in the door. This is what the constant refrain. We're, we're continually pointing one another back to this glorious truth. And this is, this, is, this is the point. This is the good news. This is the gospel. Christ has done it all. Trust in Him. Rest in Him. It's not forgive to be forgiven. It's forgive because you have been forgiven. That's how it relates horizontally. It's not make promises to God. It's trust in God's promises to you. It's not impress God with your sacrifices for Him. It's let's be impressed by His sacrifice for us together. It's, it's, it's not we come together and we sing and we do these things in the assembly to, 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 to make God happy with us. No, we sing because God is pleased with us in Christ. It's not get to work. It's, it is finished. And so we often, we try to cope with our sin and guilt, even as believers, by, by thinking if we just do more, if I just try harder, if I just get up earlier and do more, and pledging to do more, or if I just get me through this, then, then I'll promise I'll go to church every week next year. It's a great thing to be in church every week. But we, we try, but we try to make some sort of deal with God. You do this for me, God, I'll do that for you trying to self-justify, trying to self-atone for our sin. It doesn't work. We, we must look away from ourselves because what? We're the problem. It's our sin. The last, that's the thing about sin. We have to admit, I'm the problem. And because we're the problem, we don't have the solution inside of us. Our gaze is not to be constantly turned inward. Our, the solution is outside of us. It's Christ. So we're constantly looking away from ourselves into Christ. Let me just quote Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer. He said, learn to know Christ and Him crucified. He's talking to Christians. Learn to sing to Him and say, Lord Jesus, You are my righteousness. I am Your sin. You took on You, took on you what was mine, and You set on me what was Yours. You became what You were not, so that I might become what I was not. What does that say? It's, 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I mean, do you, do, you, do you see that? Do you understand the difference between doing and done? You don't have to try and earn it anymore. Jesus has earned it for you and he has never failed. You don't have to do anything to make yourself more acceptable before God. Jesus has made you acceptable by what he has done. There's nothing you need to fix because the truth is you can't fix it. So give up the exhausting and the futile effort trying to justify yourself before God. Just drop out of the rat race. 
when you when you're busy trying to do something, trying to bring something, trying to change something, trying to offer something, God is gracious in moments like this to stop us and say, "You can't. I can. I have. It is finished. Trust me. Now, from that place, as Jesus would say to the woman, go and sin no more. That's that's where our obedience comes from. That's where that's where our delight in the law of the Lord comes from. It's from that place of saying, I can't do it, but you can, you have, you've completed it, I've forgiven. Now, Lord, I want to please you. So we say together, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. When we say, I believe in the forgiveness of sin, we mean that our glorious God, at the cost of His own Son's life on the cross, has purchased for us a just forgiveness of sin that we appropriate by believing in His Son. That's what we're saying. Looking away from ourselves, outside of ourselves, looking to Him, to Christ. May God give us the ability both to see our sin and to see our Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we acknowledge very openly to you that we, we are sinners. Not just as a category, not in, as a principle, but we are real, active, sinful sinners. And we often work very hard not to acknowledge that openly because it's embarrassing and it's humiliating. But, oh God, it is the first step to glory. Because it's only when we see our need that we, we're, we, 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 our eyes can be fixed upon its remedy. So show us our need. Show us that the remedy is not inside of us. Show us the Savior. Show us Christ's perfection. Show us His cross. Show us His love. Show us His promises. Draw us to Him. Lord, drive us to Him if necessary by Your grace. And then having brought us there, assure us of Your pardon. And then as our, as our understanding, and I pray that it has been, as our understanding is better shaped and, our, uh, the, and, uh, and as our gratitude for this forgiveness is intensified, Lord, that you would make us into merciful, forgiving, gracious, kind, patient people because we believe in the forgiveness of sins. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.